morning, everyone. It is good to be with you this morning and to jump back into Romans. So if you have a Bible, open up to Romans chapter 9. We're going to be picking up our study again of this amazing book. Uh, we finished Romans chapters 1 through 8, the first major section, just a couple of months ago. And now we're going to tackle the second major section, chapters 9 through 16. Now, if you do not have a Bible and you need one, feel free to grab the, the Black Pew Bible in front of you and turn open to, I think it's on page 889. Romans chapter 9, page 889, if you're using our pew Bibles. Well, while you're opening there, let me tell you of a story I once heard. And I'm not sure if it's apocryphal, if it actually happens. It's kind of hard to figure these things out. But it's a, it's a great story anyway. It's about Henry Ford, the father of the automotive industry. You recall back in the early 20th, 20th century, the Model T was the car that launched the automotive uh, industry. And, and Henry Ford's factory was cranking these out at amazing speeds. One day, however, the entire production line screeched to a halt. Production abruptly ended, and obviously this horrified Mr. Ford, and he couldn't afford that, so he brought in a highly skilled engineer to solve the problem. Engineer showed up to the plant and walked around in eerie silence for about 30 minutes while all the workers stood around waiting for him to figure out what was wrong. About 30 minutes in, the engineer produced the crescent wrench, squatted down, and tightened the single bolt, and within minutes, the production line started cranking over and started working again. Obviously, Mr. Ford was overjoyed until a week later when he got his bill from the engineer for $5,001, and Mr. Ford was furious. So he brings the engineer back. He says, this is outrageous. I'm not paying you $5,001. You were here for 30 minutes, and you just tightened one bolt. To which the engineer replied, well, you're correct, Mr. Ford. So I charged you for a, a, a dollar for my time and tightening that bolt. But I charge you $5,000 because I knew which bolt to tighten. <laughs> it is a valuable thing to know which bolt keeps the whole production line running smoothly, doesn't it? Isn't it? What if I told you this morning that there is an equally valuable bolt in understanding God? Or maybe put it this way, understanding how God works, how we relate with him, how the whole structure of this relationship functions. That if having this bolt tightened night and square, things will keep running smoothly and confidently in your life. Likewise, if this bolt is not tightened, things will fall apart. That bolt is called the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty just means rule, power, control. And the Bible is very clear that only God exercises ultimate rule, power, and control. Only God has sovereignty. Even though we like to think we exercise sovereignty over our lives until life smacks us in the face with some unexpected financial crisis or a health concern or some unexpected loss. And we realize we actually don't have power and control over our lives. We just thought we did. The Bible says that God has sovereignty, and God alone has this sovereignty. Now, to be clear, there are tensions with this understanding that God and God alone exercises sovereignty over all the affairs of life, and some of those tensions are realized in our passage this morning in Romans chapter 9 in a very practical way. When things do not turn out the way that we had hoped that they would, 
for the early church, these early Christians, that was Israel's uh, disbelief and rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. And it gets voiced in our chapter in various ways. So, for example, if you've got Romans 9 open, in, vo- in verse 6, the, the question comes out, has God's promise failed? In verse 14, they say, well, is God being unfair? And then in verse 19, it asks, well, if God is sovereign, does it matter how I live because he's going to do what he wants to do? Now, something that you want to ask yourself, have, have you ever asked yourselves those questions? Has God failed? Is he being unfair? If he's all-powerful, should I even be bothered praying? Have you ever felt the tension of God's promises or the struggle of God's promises not panning out in your life the way you wanted to? So what do you make of that? I mean, did you screw up? Did somebody else Has God forgotten about you? Did he decide to shelve you? Are you done? Maybe more to the point, is there any chance that things will be different? Is there hope for the future? In essence, that's exactly what these three chapters, Romans 9, 10, and 11, are seeking to address. Now, in our passage, that comes out in the context of Israel's disbelief and rejection of the gospel. But those tensions will come out in your life in all kinds of different ways. It's been a while since we've been in Romans, so let me just kind of back up and kind of give you a sense of where we're at, especially if you weren't here for the first half. Romans chapter 1 through 8 was an amazing explanation of the gospel. Paul talks about God's glory, man's sin, our need for salvation, the triumph of Christ, and the hope for all who would believe in him. And then in chapters 12 through 16, Paul goes on for about five chapters explaining the application of that gospel truth. In fact, you could actually go from the very end of chapter 8 and jump right into chapter 12 and not miss a beat. So let me show you that, for example. Let's put it on the screen right now. On the top is the end of chapter 8. Below is chapter 12. Paul ends chapter 8. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I mean, you could entirely ignore chapters 9, 10, and 11... And feel like you didn't miss a thing in the book of Romans, right? It just goes naturally from one to the other. So why do we have these three chapters? Here's the reason why. Because Paul knows his audience. He knows that that, that these Christians, these Jews who had converted to Christianity, must be asking a very important question. And that question is this, as the gospel is spreading like wildfire, and it it spread like wildfire throughout the Mediterranean, and the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, are coming to salvation, coming to Christ in droves. The kingdom of God is being filled with the nations of the earth, but apparently not Israel, not the Jews. The The overwhelming majority of Jews rejected Christ. So you can imagine if you were a Jewish convert to Christianity, you're asking yourself, what happened? What happened? I see all this amazing things that's happening, but, but my people, the Israelites, are not coming into the kingdom. God had promised that. Is he done with us? 
Is he done with them? What do we make of all this? So Paul, before he starts applying the gospel, this new life, he says, let's, let's talk about this. And in dealing with this, we learn something really important. We learn about the sovereignty of God, especially when things don't turn out the way we want them to. So in our passage this morning, you're going to notice if you're paying attention, there are four questions that be, are being asked, but to truly get the sense of, of the overall argument, I've converted questions three and four because of their kind of rhetorical in nature to actual statements of response because that's what they are. And I think you see clearly the argument here. So here they go. Here, here's the questions. The sovereignty of God, has God's promise failed us? Is God being unfair? And as Paul lays out the case for the sovereignty of God, there are two responses to this. Number one, the wrong response, which is a kind of fatalism, right? And he said, addresses that in verses 19 and 29. And then there's the right response, which is faith in what God is doing. So, so that's where we're going this morning. Let me read to you the first five verses as we begin our study. Romans chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. You can hear, stop there, you can hear Paul's absolute earnest grief and love for his own people, can't you? I mean, he says it three times. I'm not lying. My, the Holy Spirit bears conscious witness to me. This is how I feel. I wish that God would cast me out and bring them in. Paul is clearly saddened that even though his people through their history had eight evidences. Did you count that? He's, he's rattling it off. Eight evidences that would prepare them for the arrival of the Messiah. Not only did they miss him, but they outright rejected Jesus entirely. Which led to the natural question then, if you were a Jewish convert to Christianity, then did the word of God fail? But what about all the promises to the patriarchs like Abraham, Moses, and, and David, and all the prophets? Has it all been for nothing? Did it fail since the majority of Israel remains in disbelief? Can I no longer trust the promises of God? That, that's the first response here we see in verse 6. And that's the first question of the morning. And I love the way um, the New Living Translation brings it out, very straightforward. Well then, has God failed to fulfill his promises to Israel? That's a question you might have been tempted to ask. Has God failed to fulfill his promises to me? Paul responds immediately by saying no. And then he drops the first bombshell in our passage of the morning. Look at there, verse 6. He says, not all who are from Israel belong to Israel. And then in verse 7, Paul says the same thing from a slightly different angle. You're not a child of Abraham because of being physically his offspring, but you're a child of Abraham because like Abraham, you believed in the promises of God. 
verse 7, Paul says, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So if you've been in our study, you know Paul's already set us up for this. Back in Romans chapter 4, verse 11, when Paul said that Abraham would be the father of all who would believe, right? Here's a mind-blowing fact for, 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 the, for the Jews and even for many today. Israel, the people of God, are first and foremost a people of promise, not a people of ethnicity. The entire paradigm of the Old Testament is changing in Christ. In other words, being the people of God, it's not about race. It's about grace. And Paul is just blowing their minds. And he uses two illustrations in verses 9 through 13 to help tease us out even more. He says, God chose Isaac, not Ishmael. Even though Ishmael himself was physically descended from Abraham, that's not who the promise came from. Now, Paul, as we say in Hawaii, is Akamai. He's very smart. He knows his audience. And so they might be thinking, yeah, 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 but that's different because... Because I, Isaac and Ishmael, Ishmael wasn't a true son because they didn't have the same mother. So Paul, anticipating that, says, yeah, so if you just count that one, he uses Jacob and Esau, who were both descendants of Abraham directly, the children of Isaac. They were both true-born sons. And he says of Jacob and Esau, he chose Jacob over Esau. Look at verse 11. That God's purpose of election might continue. Here's what's ironic as Paul is writing to these Christians, these Roman, these Jewish Christians in particular. He's having to remind these Jewish Christians in the Roman church who are known as the chosen people about God's sovereignty to choose whom he will bless. Just as God chose Abraham and the Jews in the Old Testament, God now chooses the Gentiles to receive salvation in the new. So God's word of promise, Paul is saying, did not fail because Israel is coming into the kingdom. It's just not the Israel that they expected. God's sovereignty means he can choose who he wants, even if it's different from what we expected it to be. And what I find amazing is, you see this in verse 11, it had nothing, God's choice had nothing to do with them, their behavior, their morality, their stature, their appearance. Look at verse 11. They were not yet born and had done nothing, neither good nor evil. But God chose one and not the other because as verse 11 says, he has a plan that he's working out. No, 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 pause. Because we're Americans by and large, and we live in a consumer culture, and this kind of stuff comes to a shock to us because we live in a consumer culture where we as the consumer have the right to choose. And so we believe as we breathe this air, we think all of life is simply a matter of our choice. We elevate choice to the essential aspect of freedom. And by and large, I'm about the same age as many of you, I'm in that area, where the church and evangelical Christianity for the last three decades have not helped much matters much either, 
because we've marketed ourselves, the church and Christianity, as merely purveyors of spiritual goods and services. That you, as the consumer, can choose or not choose. That's how we've marketed the church. All for the sake of growing the church. Rather than reminding ourselves that Christianity and churches, we're not purveyors of goods and services. Now, believe me, that happens. That's a good thing. But we are first and foremost covenant communities of people chosen by God, as Peter says, to proclaim his excellencies and his glory and his name. It's a very different thought. So it comes as a shock to us to read in God's word that when it comes to our salvation, we didn't do the choosing. God did. God's sovereignty means he chooses not us. And if you think, well, I'm not sure if I agree with that. Well, I mean, we were reading it here, but let's go to other parts of Scripture. Because Jesus said the same thing in John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 16. He said to the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. God said to Jeremiah the prophet a very similar thing that Paul is writing to the Romans in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. And notice how much God is the, the, the active, he's doing the action of the verb. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. And one last passage. It's just a fantastic one. I want you to go to your Bibles, a couple pages to the right, to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. We studied this many years ago when we studied the book of Ephesians. This is what Paul writes in verse 4. Even as God chose us in him before the, okay, even as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Wow. God tells the prophet Jeremiah, look, before you were even born, I knew you. Before you even stepped foot as a toddler, I had a job for you. By the way, this is one of the reasons we take a staunch stance for life. This is just some of the passages we could look to, right? God says to Jeremiah, God says to the people of Rome, of Israel, Paul wrote to the Ephesians, before you were even born, God chose you. And guys, you know what? I am, I praise God, we should be celebrating that God chose us before we were ever born. Because I know he wouldn't choose half of you after you were born, right? I just, that's just the way it goes. So we thank God for his sovereignty. But here's how the argument goes. So if God's promises did not fail, and in fact they are coming true because of his choice of the Gentiles over the Jews, one over the other, then is God being unfair in choosing some but not choosing others? See, this is how the argument goes. Look at verse 14. That's the second question we're going to look at. Verse 14, they say, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So if the first question, friends, was about God's ability to fulfill his promises, the second question is about God's character. And, and if we're honest, we can relate with this, can't we? We may be tempted to question God's ability, God's promises. Can't God do what I want him to do in my life? And then if we get a response to that, and it's a response we don't like, we are then tempted to doubt his goodness and his character. Well, he's not being fair then. So you can relate and understand this train of thought here. 
But notice how Paul deals with this. Paul answers the question about God's justice or fairness, excuse me, or the lack thereof, with a comment about God's mercy and power. Now, this is what may seem like what's called a non sequitur, something that does not follow. It doesn't seem like it makes sense until you realize the question itself is a bit misguided. God does not deal savingly with sinners on the basis of justice, but he deals with us on the basis of mercy. It's been a while, so go with me. You recall when we looked at Romans chapter 2 and 3, Paul made the case. We spent probably a month making the case, understanding what Paul was saying, that all of humanity stands under God's just judgment. Remember, I think, the, the series we, I think those three weeks we called Why Religion Isn't Enough, and we talked about that, that all of humanity, that no one is righteous, no one does good, no one seeks after God, but we have gone all after our own desires, our own ways, our own lusts. So maybe I can illustrate this point better than I can teach it. So I have some Starbucks gift cards here. So Jason, you get a card. Hey, you get a card for being here. Thank you. You get a card for being here. Hey, Michael, you get two cards. Taylor and Lindsay, oh, you guys, you all get cards. It's good to sit in the front, right? Now, they're pretty excited. Why? Because it was totally unexpected, right? I, I didn't owe them these gift cards. This is simply a gift. Here's my question. Is it unfair that I didn't give all of you gift cards? Yeah, because you grew up in an entitled country culture here. Yeah, yeah, they're like, yeah, it is unfair, Robert Figures. You guys know, no, it's not unfair because I don't owe any of you gift cards. Right? That's why they're called gift cards, not I owe you cards. And those are legitimate. There's like $5 on each of those cards. So go for it. You have a latte after church. In the same way, if God sovereignly chooses to bless some who, un, who are undeserving with salvation, out of a mass of humanity that is equally undeserving, how does it follow that he's being unfair? He's not. We do not have a claim, by definition, we don't have a claim on mercy whether it's someone else's mercy or God's mercy, because then by definition, that's not mercy, it's a debt. A debt is something that's owed to you. And the only thing sinful humanity is owed by God, Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin, wages is what you're owed. When you do work, when you do the work of sin, you should get something for that, is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. The shocking reality isn't that God um, doesn't extend his compassion to everyone. It's that God extends his compassion to anyone. Because none of us are deserving of it. That's the reality of it. That's what Paul is getting at. He is not being unfair. When it comes to eternal life, some get mercy, others get justice. In neither case is God unfair. Which is why it says, I will give mercy to whomever I will give mercy, and I will harden whomever I choose to harden. Let's talk about that, because we do see that in the text. That God, we see that like God, in the Old Testament, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
And if you're familiar with the, the Exodus passage, God said, I am doing this so that I might display my power through you, that all the world might know that I am God. But here's what's something interesting. Pharaoh wanted that. If you read Exodus, it consistently says, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then the language shifts. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Friends, I've said this before. Ultimately, God will give you what you truly want. God always gives us what we truly want. Moses, in Exodus, wanted to see God's glory, and so he got that. Pharaoh wanted to harden his heart against God, and so he got that as well. When God hardens someone, he doesn't create the hardness. He just allows that man or that woman to go their way. God hardens those whom he will and whom he wants to harden, but those who are hardened want to be hardened. So the real question is, do you truly know what you want? Do you want God's mercy or do you want God's justice? And believe me, your answer to that question will shape the way you interact with God, the way you understand the Christian worldview, Christian faith, the way you just go through life. When you, exp when you want mercy, that shapes you some way differently than when you want justice. I'll give you a hot tip. I don't want justice. You don't want justice. You want mercy. So Paul lays out the reality of the sovereignty of God, and, and it, it, it's counter to what we want, because we think we want justice, and we don't realize, no, 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 I really, really want mercy. So now he talks about the way we respond to the sovereignty of God, and so that's response number one. Well, let's look at the wrong response, which I call fatalism. Look at verse 19. So, so you will say to me then, Paul says, well, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? See, what they're saying is, so why is God blaming us then? Because who can resist his will? If, we're just, if he's sovereign over everything, what difference does it make? Well, they're half right. God will do what God wants to do. That's what it is to be sovereign. But it does matter how we live and the choices we make. That was the whole point of the Moses and Pharaoh illustration. Now, if you've been paying attention and you're following the argument... You might go, well, wait a minute, but that contradicts the illustration of Jacob and Esau when God says, I chose them before they were even born, before they had done good or evil, so it still doesn't matter what choices I make. But friends, here's what I want to talk to you about. This is where there's mystery. You might be asking, so how do I know I'm one that receives mercy, and how will I know if I'm the one that's going to receive God's justice? Here's the mystery that the Bible always holds out. You get to choose. You get to choose. If you want God's mercy, you embrace basically the gospel of grace. If you want God's justice, then you just reject the gospel. You get to choose. Nobody forces you. I don't know how that works out. But the Bible teaches that clearly. You can have the wrong response of fatalism and get angry at God. Or you can have the right response. We'll get to that in a little bit. But the, here's the thing that the people who get all fatalistic forget is that while God exercises his sovereignty, God always uses means. God always uses means to accomplish his purposes and will. 
One of the best illustrations of that, um, you guys know I'm a, I'm a history buff, um, God wanted to bring salvation to a bunch of young Jewish girls, really teenagers, during uh, World War II. Unfortunately, they were in Ravensbrück concentration camp. And so God needed to bring a young teenage girl who knew the gospel into that concentration camp. And so he had Corey Ten Boom's family arrested because they were smuggling Jews to safety anyway, so the Nazis arrested them, split the family apart. Corey was sent to Ravensbrück. So he got this gospel, I mean, this God-bespotted young lady into this concentration camp, but they also needed, she needed time to present the gospel to disciple these young Jewish girls in the Christian faith. And so God allowed their barracks to be absolutely infested by fleas so that the guards and the SS would not bother with their routine checks, giving Corey Ten Boom all the time she needed to share the gospel, disciple these young ladies, and bring them to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And I love the way she talks about this in her poem, uh, Tapestry. I love her perspective. Here's what she wrote much later, years after the war. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaves steadily. Oftentimes he weaves sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle ceases to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth can dim. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Friends, God's sovereignty in all affairs of life is not a reason to stop taking actions. It is the foundation to give any meaning and significance for the actions we actually take. Because he is working it out according to his plan, Ephesians tells us. Friends, look at me with, um, in verse 22 to 24. So Paul says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Friends, somehow, and I do not understand how, I'll, I'll take a stab at it, but somehow... If God showed mercy to all or condemned all, we would not see his full glory. Somehow, and, and here's how I think it works out, if God just showed mercy or if he just showed his judgment, his justice, we wouldn't see the full glory of who God is. If he showed only mercy to all, we would see him as a pushover. Because either he, he can't or he will not deal with evil and sin in the world. But if he only showed his justice, his judgment to all, we would see him as only a tyrant with no beauty and no hope. We would either despise him out of our pride or we would be terrified of him out of our fear. In either case, we would not worship him out of our love. So God reveals both his mercy, and his justice in his sovereign choice of election. That we might see a fuller understanding of his glory. 
This was the case for Israel in the Old Testament, and this is now the case of, of Israel, both Jews and Gentiles in the New Testament. So what is the right response? Look at verse 30 and 33. Paul writes this. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, but who, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. D. James Kennedy, he was the, um, a fantastic pastor uh, at the Royal uh, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale. He wrote this parable that captures a little bit of this. Let me read it to you. There are five friends of mine who are planning to uphold a bank. I find out about it, and I plead with them. I beg them not to do it. Finally, they push me out of the way, and they start out. I tackle one of the men and, and wrestle him to the ground. The others go ahead. They rob the bank. A guard is killed. They are captured, convicted, sentenced. The one man who was not involved in the robbery goes free. Now I ask you this question. Whose fault was it that the other men are imprisoned for life? Now this other man who is walking around free, can he say, because my heart is so good, I'm a free man? The only reason that he is free is because of me, because I restrained him. So those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. Those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. Thus we see that salvation is all of grace from its beginning to its end. It's interesting what Paul says here. I think this hits at the rub of what the Christian worldview or just in our society, everyone's trying to be right in some way. Paul says Israel did not find the righteousness they sought because it was not by faith, but by their own efforts. And here's the reality, right? So righteousness in the Bible, it, it means kind of right standing, uh, be, being justified, being right, which is the word righteousness. But sometimes, you know, you go to church or you hear these words, they lose their real meaning. To be righteous just means to be okay, right, good, beautiful, true, that kind of thing. Had Israel reached this righteousness, they would have had a self-righteousness, one of which they could be proud of, one of which they could look down their noses on others who didn't attain it because they earned it. If being made right with God was accomplished this way, through our works, through our moral effort, that wouldn't be good news. And this is what religious people do. Now, when I use the word religious people, you're probably thinking of people like us. I, I'm convinced, like David Foster Wallace, a phenomenal writer, he was right on the money. He wasn't a Christian. He says, we're all religious. We all worship. All of us do. Right? You might have traditional religion, which is kind of what you might say this is, but you have secular religion out there just as easily, right? Whether it's climate change or social justice, or I like going to the gym. I like fitness. So you have the fitness religion. And all of them are religions. They all have their liturgies. We all show up at the same time, run on the treadmill, and then we do the rower, and then we throw weights around. We have our liturgies. We have our communion, right, the little protein bar and protein shake that we take regularly to be a part of the community. We all have the sin of being lazy and not working out. We all have the salvation of reduced body mass and all that. 
I mean, we all have the fellowship. It's religion. It's just a secular religion, right? And, and you can do the same thing, whether it's climate change or social justice. There are those that are in, those that are out. There are sins you commit. There's ways to be forgiven. There's ways you, you get the point. And what Paul is saying is that any of those religions that give you ultimate rightness before God, if you attain them, you would be insufferable because you'd be proud that you got it and look down at those who didn't. Or you'd be full of fear because you know you could never get it. But the amazing reality of the gospel is that it crushes both our pride and our fear because of the message behind it. It crushes our pride because there's no way we could deserve it. But it also destroys our fear because we know how much we're loved. I mean, that's what you should be thinking of every time you see the cross. Those two almost contradictory truths coming together. If being made right with God was dependent upon good works, our morality, our behavior, our righteousness, we, the world would be condemned to live in pride, right? Because we've achieved that righteousness or be, we'd be condemned to live in fear because we know we never could. This is why Paul says that Jesus is the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. What he's saying is that you have to realize you were so bad off that it took God himself exercising his sovereignty, and I might add, without your permission, to rescue you even though you did not want to be rescued. That was me, amen. And brought me to be an object of his mercy. Because there is no way you could do it for yourself without either A, disqualifying yourself because you're full of your pride, or derailing yourself because you're full of fear. That it took just recognizing, I'm a hot mess, and I need a savior, and I can't earn it, I can't do it. I'm not against being moral and good. You guys get that. We ought to do those things as a reflection of his character and as a grateful response to his love towards us, but not as a means of getting anything, but as a reflection of all that I've been given. I realize this can be kind of abstract, so I want to end our time quickly with um, just ways to pro six ways to process what you've just heard. Number one, share the burden of Paul. When it comes to this doctrine of election that can be, I understand, can be very controversial, here's the bottom line. I don't know, you don't know who's chosen. So you share the gospel with as many as you can, as often as you can. It is one of the most confident building realities of preaching the gospel that I can imagine. I remember one time, I'll make a story, short story, and I got an opportunity to preach the gospel at USC. I was there at Tommy Trojan. Second year I was doing it, preaching the gospel with my friends, and there was a bunch of um, activist groups that shut us down, almost caused the riots. The security grabbed me, took me off the stage, and my friends, and they were bummed out. And I says, guys, take heart, because we preach the gospel, and doesn't matter how they responded, those whom God has chosen will hear and will one day respond. We did the job. Share Paul's burden. Be burdened for those who don't know the gospel. Share it with them. Number two, trust God's word. Friends, you may not be able to reconcile God's sovereignty and human responsibility, but that's no reason to jettison your trust in God's word any more than because you can't understand quantum physics, you jettison math, right? That's not how that works. So you can trust God's word. Third, related to that, is embrace the mystery. 
I know we live in a time of modernity, and we're also postmodernists. And, and, and if you're a modernist, you think everything's got to make sense, or you got to reject it, right? That's the hubris of science. So oftentimes, postmodernity oftentimes says nothing can really make sense, so don't embrace any truth. They both screw that up. We embrace the mystery. We ought to expect that the God of the Bible will stump us at times. We should be humble enough to admit that, but disciplined enough to continue to pursue to understand him. One of my favorite verses, let's go to it, Deuteronomy 28, 28. This, it's the perfect balance here. Deuteronomy 28, 28. The, no, whoops, nope, not that one. <laughs> The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion. That, that's not it. <laughs> Deuteronomy 29, 29. Yeah. This is why. I always want you to check, right? Check. That's why you should bring your Bible. Deuteronomy 29, 29. Ah, here we go. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. I love the balance. There's some things of God we will never know. They belong to him. But the things he's revealed to us, we got to own that so that we may learn to do all that was required. So embrace the mystery. Uh, number four, allow this vision of God to increase your faith and confidence in him. John Piper, one of the amazing pastors God has raised, on Romans 9, it was the chapter that caused him to leave the seminary classroom and become a pastor. He realized that God does not simply want to be analyzed, but God wants to be adored. God does not simply want to be pondered. He wants to be proclaimed. His sovereignty is not something you just scrutinize. You herald it. Allow the sovereignty of God to fill your vision of certainty in a world with uncertainty. In a world that's falling apart because the bolt is loose, you as a Christian can have it tight as rock solid, holding all things together. Because either God has ultimate power control and rule, or you do. And I think you're pretty confident by now, you, that's a scary proposition. If it's all on you, you need, a, you, you need God, right? That's the reality. Okay, sorry. Number five, bow down before his godness. The sovereignty of God deserves your worship, your praise, and your praise, and your adoration. That's it. Bow down to God's godness. And then lastly, never get over the wonder of your salvation, friends. I mean, you should be, that's the weird thing about the Christian faith when you get it. It should make, it, you're just a walking paradox. You ought to be one of the most humble people around because you know you deserve, you don't deserve a thing. And you ought to be one of the most grateful people around because you know you don't deserve a thing. And you get it all because of the sovereignty of God working out his plan. And you're included in that plan. That plan transcends you, but it includes you. We always have to walk in that third way of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the richness that is Romans chapter 9. We could dive, we could mine its depths for weeks on end. And yet, just being at the surface of it, we recognize that your sovereignty, though amazing and, 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 and tempting to philosophically, intellectually wrestle through it, pastorally, we can just trust that when things don't turn out the way we want them to, we know your promises haven't failed us. 
You will bring your promises to pass. Maybe we just misunderstand. Or maybe our expectations need to be adjusted. Or maybe we were coming to you to fulfill our plans rather than coming to you to fulfill your plan. Father, we know that there is no injustice in you. Father, and that is the cry of our world. We cry out for justice. But what we really should be crying out is for mercy because we do not have the privileged position to understand all perspectives and cast judgment upon one another. Father, help us to be a people who are driven by mercy and leave judgment to you and you alone. Father, help us not respond as the fatalists, but help us respond in faith. And we know even that, Ephesians 2 tells us, is a gift. So would you continue to give us the gift of faith that we might respond to your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.